are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Hello, and thank you for joining us for American Heritage Program. My name is Chris Mahalik. The source of our program today is HistoryNet.com. Meet the U.S. Army's first black surgeon, Alexander Augusta, by Michael Williams. Just beyond the Old Post Chapel entrance gate at Arlington National Cemetery in Arlington, Virginia, stands an obelisk headstone bearing a detailed yet spartan inscription, Commissioned Surgeon of Colored Volunteers, April 4th, 1863, with rank of Major, Commissioned Regimental Surgeon of the 7 Regiment U.S. Colored Troops, October 2nd, 1863, Brevet Lieutenant Colonel, U.S. Volunteers, March 13th, 1865, for faithful and meritorious service. Beneath these impressive credentials chiseled in bold letters, is the name Augusta. To know the lifetimes and military career of the man buried there is to better understand why Americans fought a civil war. Alexander Thomas Augusta was born in 1825 to so-called free persons of color in Norfolk, Virginia. A naturally intelligent boy, he was curious about the world, hungry for knowledge and improvement and, most important, driven by an unstoppable spirit. But Augustus lived in an age of slavery and slave uprisings. He was six years old when Nat Turner staged the silent rebellion against slave owners in nearby Southampton County, killing up to 65 people, 51 of whom were white. From then on, suspicion and distrust reigned over the black community, free and enslaved. Whites did everything in their power to keep blacks from organizing, including efforts to hold them back intellectually. To teach a person of color how to read, for example, was a serious offense and, from the slaveholding perspective, an imminent threat to life and property. Augusta, however, vigorously pursued his ambitions. None of them was reading while in his late teens. He secretly learned to do so with the help of Daniel Payne, who later became both a bishop in the African Methodist Episcopal Church and the president of Ohio's Wilberforce University. Augusta read anything he could find, and although he was omnivorous when it came to subject matter, he nevertheless had a favorite topic medicine. Increasingly well-read, Augustus set out for Baltimore, Maryland in 1847. Here he settled down temporarily and always with an eye toward doing more than reading. What he had in mind was virtually out of the question for a black man in mid-19th century America. Shortly after landing in Baltimore, Augusta moved to Philadelphia with hopes of studying medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Sadly, in his attempt at admission, he met with his first taste of the institutionalized prejudice that was quickly becoming a cancer to the Union. According to some sources, the school denied his application because he was inadequately prepared for the curriculum. The reality of circumstances, however, skews more in the direction of skin color and the unsavory notion of a black man transcending the boundaries of his designated position in society. But Augusta would have none of it. 
and following a brief stint of tutelage under the guidance of a professor at the university, returned to Baltimore, married, and around 1850 went to California where he worked as a barber in the midst of the booming gold rush. By most accounts, Augusta was saving money for, to finance his next move, which took him and his wife to Toronto, Canada. Shortly after his arrival, Augusta enrolled as a medical student at the University of Toronto's Trinity College. For the next six years, he endured the rigors of medical school, meanwhile working side jobs as a chemist and a pharmacist, selling, as one advertisement announced, patent medicines, perfumery, dye stuffs, etc., as well as services such as tooth extraction, the filling of prescriptions, and the application of leeches. Finally, in 1856, Augusta accomplished a feat that many African Americans in his day would never have entertained, let alone successfully completed. He graduated from Trinity College with a Bachelor of Medicine, according to the college's president, John McCall. He was one of my most brilliant students. Not surprisingly, Augusta enjoyed Toronto, which was known for its racial tolerance. Life there was normal. He could excel without swimming against the currents of racial bigotry. After his graduation, he opened a medical practice and had a fair amount of white patients. He also devoted enormous energy to activism within the local black community. In addition to his work as a physician, Augusta cultivated a conspicuously public presence as a champion of racial equality. He helped draft petitions against anti-black candidates for the Canadian Parliament, arranged events featuring abolitionist speakers, and served as the president of the Provincial Association for the Education and Elevation of the Colored People of Canada. But the safety and prosperity he found in his new home unfortunately didn't define the world over, and it definitely didn't match conditions for blacks in his native land, but the election of President Abraham Lincoln had sent the country spiraling on a path to civil war. Over the next few years, Augusta remained in Toronto reading headlines that dissolved from one seemingly earth-moving event to another, the rebel bombardment of Fort Sumter, the Battle of Antietam, and in 1863, President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. The latter was a turning point for thousands of African Americans, including Augusta, who saw the proclamation as a beacon of hope and a call to action, enforced as of January 1st, 1863, Lincoln's proclamation freed the slaves and allowed for the enlistment of black soldiers in the Union Army. As a doctor, Augusta's knowledge and skills were of great value to the war effort, and he immediately drafted a letter to the president offering his services. I beg leave to apply to you for an appointment as surgeon to some of the colored regiments or as physician to some of the depots of freedmen. I was compelled to leave my native country and come to this on account of prejudice against color for the purpose of obtaining a knowledge of my profession and having accomplished that object, 
at one of the principal educational institutions of this province, I am now prepared to practice it and would like to be in a position where I can be of use to my race. Lincoln and Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton forwarded Augustus' correspondence to the Army Medical Board in Washington, D.C., which summarily rejected him for several reasons, his skin color foremost among them. Still, Augustus had never cowed to prejudice, whether it was encountered in learning how to read, going to medical school, or serving his native country in a fight for the Union and emancipation. So Augusta left Toronto for Washington, where he immediately petitioned the board. I have come near a thousand miles at great expense and sacrifice, he told them, hoping to be of some use to the country and to my race at this eventful period. This simple statement moved the board to give the 38-year-old physician a chance at the qualifying exams. Augusta passed with flying colors and received both an appointment at the United States Army's first black surgeon and a commission as a major, making him the highest-ranking African-American officer in the U.S. military. Two days later, Augusta created a stir in Washington at a reception celebrating the first anniversary of the freeing of the slaves in the Union capital. As a reporter with the Evening Star observed, the appearance of a colored man in the room wearing the gold leaf applets of a major was the occasion of much applause and gratulations with the assembly. But not everyone was impressed. Some were disgusted by the sight of a colored officer. In May 1863, a crowd of whites assaulted Augusta as he took a seat on a train at Baltimore's President Street Depot one of the men cursing him before ripping the Apollos from his uni- uniform. Furious, Augusta reported the incident to the provost marshal, whose men managed to arrest a handful of the perpetrators. Other similar indignities followed, were all of them constant reminders of the country's systematic racism. Throughout the following year, Augusta encountered numerous instances of discrimination insubordination from white enlisted men, and even acts of disdain on the part of civilians, perhaps the most humiliating of them occurring in 1864. In February, Augusta was on detached service from his original unit, the 7th Regiment of U.S. Colored Troops, working as senior surgeon at Camp Stanton in Maryland. On February 1st, He had to be in nearby Washington to give testimony in a court-martial regarding the murder of a black man. That morning, he left his home in a torrential downpour and, hoping to remain dry, hailed a streetcar. As Augusta later recalled, "When when I attempted to enter, the conductor pulled me back and informed me that I must ride in on the front as it was against the rules for colored persons to ride inside. I told him I would not ride on the front, and he said I should not ride at all. He then ejected me from the platform, and at the same time gave orders to the driver to go on. I have therefore been compelled to walk the distance in the mud and rain, and have also been delayed in my attendance upon the court. 
The incident garnered widespread attention, especially with abolitionist lawmakers such as Charles Sumner, who addressed the matter during a Senate floor debate. The significance of these events, however, isn't simply in what they said about Augusta's strength of character, but also what they revealed about the United States at the close of the war. Success stories like Augusta's were largely the result of a perfect storm of human qualities, penetrating intelligence, fearlessness and determination, persistence, and a healthy sense of righteous indignation. Augusta should not have had to fight so hard to achieve what he did, and that spoke volumes about the racial problems that ultimately went unaddressed, even in the wake of a conflict that killed more than 600,000 people. After Augusta mustered out a breveted lieutenant colonel in 1866, he continued to fight for his own betterment and that of thousands of other African Americans. In September 1868, he joined the faculty of Howard University's medical school, becoming the first black professor of medicine in U.S. history. In the coming years, he also continued in private practice, founded the nation's first African-American medical society, and helped lay the foundation for what would eventually become National Medical Association. He died in December 1890 at the age of 65, his headstone at Arlington bearing mere traces of the full life he lived. This story also found at HistoryNet.com. During Reconstruction, Southern planters called on the U.S. Army to enforce an old status quo by J. Jacobs Calhoun. The Reconstruction Act of 1867 entirely appended society in the American South, enfranchising black men across the states of the former Confederacy and placing those states, except Tennessee, under the authority of the U.S. military. The Act created five military districts in the South, re requiring new state constitutions to be drafted, and the 14th Amendment ratified White black Southerners rejoiced at their citizenship status and set about exercising their newly won rights. Federal occupation and black suffrage was widely opposed by the region's white population. Seeing blacks casting ballots, negotiating labor contracts, and bearing arms panicked many former slave owners. But even while residents branded federal occupation as bayonet rule, they were quick to seek U.S. troop intervention when feeling threatened by freedmen engaging in politics. In 1867, whites in St. Landry Parish, Louisiana, were rattled by the emergence of a well-regulated black militia, which engaged in public drills, marches, asserted military pageantry, and perhaps most important, guarded Republican meetings from local belligerents, the Ku Klux Klan, etc., and safely escorted Republican voters to the polls for elections. No doubt, St. Landry's white citizens wouldn't have resisted a return to the antebellum status quo, with black Southerners essentially returned to a state of bondage, something they believed was unattainable as long as black militia remained mobilized. 
Serving as commander of the 5th Military District, which consisted of Louisiana and Texas, was Civil War hero Major General Wilfred Winfield S. Hancock. In December 1867, planters in St. Landry petitioned Hancock to send them an entire company of U.S. Cavalry under the command of a prudent and discreet officer. White Democrats across Louisiana railed against federal occupation in newspapers and in public speeches, but they nonetheless fully recognized that most U.S. soldiers harbored only a tepid commitment to Reconstruction. In their petition, the planters claimed they had been satisfied with their previous post commander, Captain William W. Webb. Men like Webb and white officers in general had reservations about occupying what they considered domestic soil populated by American citizens. Few were willing to involve themselves in strife between the parties, even when clashes would turn violent and deadly. The following petition, signed by hundreds of local citizens, was just one of dozens sent to Hancock in the fall of 1867. Parish of St. Landry, Louisiana, Opelousas, December 27, 1867. Third, the undersigned citizens, impressed with the importance and necessity of the Pacific influence of a small organized military force in our midst, respectfully request the commanding general the station at this place, a company of U.S. cavalry under the command of a prudent and discreet officer. During the time that Captain W. W. Webb of Company E, 4th U.S. Cavalry, was stationed at Opelousas, there were no disturbances, quiet reigned everywhere, and the community felt sense of perfect security. He was eminently qualified for his positions, his firmness, justice, and discretion, to say nothing of his affable manners and conciliatory deportment, rendered him generally acceptable and gave him a commanding influence which he used for the promotion of the general good. When several weeks ago, General Joseph A. Mower, then commanding, thought proper to remove Captain Webb's command, our citizens respectfully protested, in a written memorial, of which no notice seems so far to have been taken. In point of numbers, this is the mass, most important rural population in the state. This parish alone has registered about 5,000 voters, and there were probably 1,000 more male adults who could not or were not permitted to register. This large population is sufficiently compact to admit of easy and rapid concentration, it is about equally divided between the two races who, under the influence of artful demagogues and designing men, are daily placed in positions of more decided antagonism. The failure of the crops of the past year and the great difficulty of engaging situations for the future have rendered the colored population restless dissatisfied and uneasy. They are taught to believe by unscrupulous leaders that great injustice is done to them and that the whites are their enemies. They are becoming more idle and vagrant under these influences and consequently less obedient to the law. 
Larceny is becoming epidemic among them. They are just now in that condition when a few incendiary leaders could excite them to deeds of violence and great outrage. That is what we wish to avoid, and we think we are not mistaken in the remedy we suggest. That we suggest. Such is the general respect for the authority of the U.S. government, particularly as administered by the able and patriotic commander of the 5th Military District, that the mere, the mere presence of a company of U.S. cavalry under a proper officer would import feeling of security and effectually prevent the outbreak of public disturbance. We beg leave to assure you that it is not from a mere sense of personal fear as to the result of such an outbreak that we invoke the presence of the military arm of the government, but it is because we think the general interests of the parish, the state, and the nation would be materially injured by any collision between the races. In forwarding the petition to Hancock, the local Freedmen's Bureau agent Oscar H. Violent insisted there was no cause for alarm and that the armed assemblages of freed people were peaceable and used their arms to withstand coercion into unfair labor contracts. Violet acknowledged the validity of the black militia, but nevertheless urged Hancock to dispatch a cavalry unit without delay. He complied and the troopers began disarming and demobilizing the militia after arriving. In February 1868, this force, accomplished by Violet, disrupted a meeting of the Opelousas Republican Club, proclaiming it illegal and ordering the freed people in attendance to disarm. Chafing at garrison duty, the unit's commander was vocal in opposition to armed meetings of freed people and ordered them to cease. Black Republicans could no longer carry their arms in public. The local black militia had been so weakened, in fact, it prompted one of the most horrific massacres in U.S. history. In September 1868, the beating of a local freedman's schoolteacher by white assailants spiraled into a clash between black militiamen and St. Landry citizens. Disarmed and demobilized with no federal troops willing to come to their aid, the militiamen were simply outgunned. White extremists, some of whom even had signed the 1867 petition, combed the parish, capturing or killing any freed person unfortunate enough to cross their path. In what was known as the Opelousas Massacre, 21 captured militiamen were marched to a mass grave in a nearby woods and killed by firing squad, spawning weeks of racial violence and the slaying of an estimated 200 freedmen. In many ways, the 1867 petition and demobilization at St. Landry's Black Militia had made that possible. This article originally appeared in the spring 2024 issue of America's Civil War magazine. 
celebrated President's Day this week. There's some fun facts about past presidents. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson both died on July 4th. Second President John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, the third president, died just within hours of each other. What made the coincidence even more odd was that the two, two died on July 4th, 1826, just 50 years after the original American Independence Day. James Madison was the shortest president. Before there were short kings, there was James Madison. America's fourth president was also the shortest, standing at five feet four and weighing just over a hundred pounds. John Quincy Adams went skinny dipping daily. The sixth president, John Quincy Adams, used to go skinny dipping in the Potomac River. The activity was part of his morning routine for years. Martin Van Buren was the first president born in the U.S. Unlike Washington, Martin Van Buren, the eighth president, was the first president to be born in the U.S. The previous seven were born in, as British subjects. John Tyler was a father to 15 children. John Tyler not only ran a country but a village. The 10th president fathered 15 children more than any other. From 1815 to 1860, he welcomed eight sons and seven daughters before his death in 1862. Thank you for joining us. My name is Chris Mihalik. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.